2: Hello, everybody. I am Ari Barbalat, your host today with the New Books in Israel Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network series of podcasts interviewing authors of new books throughout the social sciences and humanities. I'm honored to be in dialogue with my guest today, Dr. Anders Persson. He is an associate Professor of Political Science at Linnaeus University, just located just outside of Malmo, Sweden. We will be discussing his new book, EU Diplomacy and the Israeli-Arab Conflict, 1967 to 2019, published by Edinburgh or Edinburgh University Press, Edinburgh University Press, 2020. Anders, it's a privilege to be in your presence today. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Ari. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to, to be on.
2: Thank you. It's great to be with you. Um, please tell us a bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to university and graduate school?
1: I, uh, I grew up here in the south of Sweden in a small city located 40 kilometers uh, north of Malmö. So I did my uh, undergraduate work uh, at Malmö University. Then I did my PhD at Lund University, which is a bigger Swedish University. I, I wrote about the role of the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, and the European Union and the role uh, of the EU in, in the conflict. Then I did my postdoc at University of Copenhagen in in, uh, in Denmark, looking more specifically at uh, the EU's normative power and normative instruments and declarations uh, in the conflict. And now I am a tenured uh, associate professor at, uh, at a small university called Linnaeus University, a bit north of Malmö.
2: Wonderful. How did you become interested in the topic of EU-Israeli relations?
1: It's a very long story, actually. I, I, uh, I grew up in a working class uh, home. Both of my parents were factory, factory workers, and not, none had any connections whatsoever to the Middle East or to anything political or religious for that matter, a completely apolitical and non-religious home. So I'm a very sort of strange bird in in that sense, but it began when I was a kid. I was 11 years old, went with my class to the local library. The teacher told all the kids, you know, get a book to read and all sort of the books for, for young men where, where uh, other people had borrowed them. So I went into the adult section and picked a book on political violence. It was actually left-wing terrorism in Germany in the 1970s.
0: Interesting. But
1: my mind was completely mesmerized by the idea how you can kill other people for your political, ideological, or religious convictions. This was in the mid-1990s and just a year after Hamas in in Gaza and West Bank started off a major wave of of suicide bombings against Israel. So my teenage mind was uh, obsessed by the question, not only why people can kill others for their beliefs, but why they can kill themselves. Uh, So those two questions of why people kill others and why they kill themselves have followed me through life up until this day now this the mid 1990s was a time when you know great optimism and my parents told me to get you know a proper education to get a proper job so i I started uh studying economy at the university and uh i started uh, the first of september 2001 and 10 days later the 9-11 attacks took place and they opened up a world for people like me. So I went to the Middle East. I stayed in a kibbutz in Israel for a while and went back and sort of pursued degrees in topics that I really liked.
2: Wonderful. Um, You alluded to growing up in and around Malmo and your university is uh, just on the outskirts of Malmo. Um, Before getting into the content questions, I'd be curious to ask your assessment of why Malmo is so ripe for the radicalism that has taken place there and caught the attention of the news. What's unique about Malmo that makes it susceptible to the radicalism that has taken place? And what's unique about the populations that live there that make it ripe for the kinds of headlines that have come out of Malmo?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a very interesting question. It's a very interesting city. For a for researcher. I spent a lot of time there, and I think a lot sort of, of of the dynamics that are going on in Malmo at the moment and has been going on there for, for quite a while. Uh, it has always been an immigrant city, so it took in a lot of refugees in different waves. took in a lot of refugees, Jewish refugees after World War II. Uh, and then Hungarians after the, the uprising in Hungary in, in 56 from Sheila in 73, and a lot of Palestinians after the first Lebanon War of 1982. And then other Muslims and Arabs came from Iraq and from Syria and from other places. So it has a big Palestinian and other Arab population today, which I think is one of the reasons why it has. Uh, problems with antisemitism. We have other uh, other citizens in Sweden with, with uh, other immigrant communities, which has much less problems with antisemitism. So I think the fact that we have a significant Palestinian minority there is sort of one of, 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 of the keys to understanding this. And of course, uh, Palestinian and other Arabs, is uh, they are one of sort of the voting bases for uh, the left-wing Labour Party here in Sweden, so there is an alliance between uh, those uh, uh, those communities, which I think is also part of of, uh, of of the problems of anti-Semitism in Malmo has been for uh, a couple of years now. Uh, then I think it's also w- worth mentioning that despite you know Malmo's problems with radicalism anti-Semitism, violence and crime in general, uh, a very striking feature is that it has sent very few people to Syria and Iraq, much fewer than the other big Swedish cities, which, of course, prompts the question of why. Uh, and that is an open question at the moment, which I think is a perfect question for somebody. It's a young person, you know, writing a PhD or, or, or something like that. But it has been speculated that Malmö is radical enough so that people have no, no, no need to go to, uh, to Syria.
2: Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Um, as we go into the content questions um, pertaining to your book, I was struck by your discussion in your introduction about the importance of international relations theory and theories. What role did theories of international relations play in your analysis of EU-Israeli relations? Are any specific theories and approaches to international relations most helpful to analyze EU foreign policy in general and its attitude towards the Middle East in particular? Do you feel that we need a combination of theories to understand what's going on in EU Middle East relations and EU policy towards Israel and the Palestinians?
1: Yeah, we absolutely need a a plurality of of, uh, international relations theories uh, for analyzing, I think, this problem and, and, and many others. And I think people should be open to applying different perspectives on the case. I depart from sort of political realism, meaning that national interests, security, rivalry, uh, struggle over resources, and sort of these form the base of the EU's involvement here. Uh, But many factors from liberalism, say the UN system, international law, democracy promotion, trade, interdependence, uh, support for NGOs, regional cooperation. These are also very important factors of of the EU's involvement in the conflict. And there are many examples of that. And from say constructivism and more critical perspective, we can take uh, concepts like uh, discourse analysis, narratives, uh, agencies, different perceptions uh, and also sort of different conceptions of power and what it is and how you apply it. So these three big and broad theoretical perspectives all contribute uh, to my analysis. And then it would be possible to add uh, even further perspectives, but I didn't do that.
2: How did the particular approaches of Javier Solana, Catherine Ashton, and Federica Mogherini toward the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the Middle East during their tenures as High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security differ from one another. To what degree were these differences a product of the the individual worldviews of these three of these three people of these three diplomats? To what degree were they motivated by dynamics in EU-US relations and local, ex- local changes on the ground in the Israeli-Palestinian dynamic. Can you comment on the different approaches, the similarities and, different, sim- similarities and differences between Solana Ashton and Mogherini in dealing with the Israeli-Palestinian situation?
1: I would say that they are very small uh, and uh, sort of my book and and the story of the European Union in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not a story of individual leaders. They may Mm -hmm. come and go. They may be from the right to the center, to the left. They have had over the decades, I would say, pretty much the same uh, opinions. And that is also, I think, uh, a takeaway, which is worth mentioning that, there is a standard European narrative about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which especially the Israeli right hates very, very much. And that is that the Arab-Israeli conflict is the key to other conflicts in the Middle East and a solution to uh, that conflict will lead to a lot of other good things in the region. And that is shared widely by politicians across the board, from the right to the center, to the left. And all of these three individuals that you mentioned share that worldview. Now, I should say, to be fair, here, that this narrative has diminished somehow over the past 10 years, especially the past five years, since Trump, Brexit, the refugee crisis, the corona pandemic which means that a lot of other things have taken uh, over the agenda. So Israel-Palestine, as we call it today, instead of the Israeli-Arab conflict, is not at all as dominating as it was a decade or two or three, four decades ago.
2: To what degree are European and EU decision makers aware of the feelings that many Israelis have regarding the EU's approach to the conflict? To what degree do they understand the sense of resentment that Israelis sometimes feel about the EU's role, the sense of hypocrisy, the sense of misguidedness? To what degree do they understand it? To what degree are they aware of it? To what degree do they get where it's coming from? Or is it something that they ignore or are they oblivious to? I'm curious, to what degree are EU leaders aware of where its critics are coming from?
1: I would say that there is greater awareness uh, on that particular issue. And I think it's also important to go back here. I mean, there is a lot of sort of, uh, there is a lot of layers of complexities. I mean, starting with say the colonialism, Holocaust in Europe, instead of European-Jewish relations uh, over a long period of time. So this is part of of sort of the luggage that we we have here that we have to uh, unpack. Uh, I think it's fair to say that that, uh, for many decades, uh, both Israeli governments, successive Israeli governments from left to the right, and also sort of the wider Israeli population, they were extremely skeptical about the the EU's role here in the conflict because it was seen as pondering to first an Arab narrative of the conflict and later a a Palestinian narrative of the conflict. And and one of the reasons why the EU took this position was in order to secure good relations with the OPEC countries after the wars of 1967 and 1973 when when the EU depended heavily on oil from the Middle East, around 50% of the total energy consumption, 80% of the oil imports came from the Middle East at this time. But as the decades went by, uh, and this, I think especially after 9-11, uh, 2001, and also after the refugee crisis and the waves of terrorism that we have had here in Europe, I think that many Europeans, both among the general population, and among leaders have identified, I think, more closely with, with Israel and less closely uh, with the Palestinian. And of course, the fact that the far right has been rising all over, especially Western Europe, compromising around say, you know, 20% uh, of the electorate in, in, in many countries. These, this means, of course, a new and very big, powerful pro-Israeli force in Europe.
2: What role did the did the 1967 six-day war play in stimulating the European Commission's approach to the Israeli-Arab conflict? In what ways is the EU's role since the 1990s similar and or different from the approach taken by the European Commission in the post-1967 years and even the 1970s? Both of these wars,
1: 1967 and 1973, were watershed events for Europe for different reasons. The 1967 war took place 20 years after World War II. At this time, there, there wasn't a common European foreign policy. But a lot of people pushed for it uh, in the European Parliament, in the European Commission, and in various governments. And people used this crisis and said, you know, here's a major war taking place on the doorsteps of Europe. We need to use this war to unite. We need to use this war to create a foreign policy. There is a political saying that says, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. So they used this war to create a common Europe- European foreign policy this was sort of and that's also one of the reasons why it is unique why it has a sort of special emotional baggage and 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 all of this so it was used to create a common european foreign policy and that succeeded Uh, and then the next war took place 1973 led to the oil crisis the price of oil went up 400 percent over a night led to a major energy crisis uh, in Europe, in the U.S., and in, in the whole of the industrialized world. These very high energy prices also led to massive transferring of wealth from the industrialized world to the oil producers in the, in the Middle East, which then resulted in an increase of about a 1,000% increase in trade between the EU and the OPEC countries in the 1970s. Where there were big things going on Uh, Here, Uh, if we then fast forward the tape to uh, the 1990s, we had the Oslo Agreement. We had the peace process began began in Madrid in 1991, continued with the Oslo, the Oslo Agreement in 1993. The EU for the first time then got a sort of a role on the ground in setting up. Palestinian institutions, first and foremost, setting up the Palestinian Authority, which became sort of the the government body in in, uh, the autonomous uh, Palestinian eras under self-rule. So the EU contributed with around 50% uh, of the whole funding to the Palestinians during the peace process of the 1990s, which of course has continued in some way or form up until this day.
2: How did the end of the Cold War change European perspectives towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict?
1: I think it had an, uh, an enormous uh, uh, role because I think it's, first of all it's, it's, it's important to say that the 1980s, they were, it was a very dark decade for the Israeli-Arab conflict. First it provoked a major war in Lebanon in the early uh, 1980s and then an intifada in the occupied territories in 1987. So it was very dark, but suddenly quite fast at the end of the eighties, it went sort of from, a, from very dark to, to quite optimistic, to a lot of optimism. Uh, and a lot of things happen in, in, in these years that that unleashed the peace process. And the EU's declarations were very important here. The EU had throughout the 80s legitimized the two key principles of Oslo, which was mutual recognition and land for peace. These are sort of the two normative formulas that underpins the Oslo framework. And these were legitimized first and most strongly by the EU at the time both the Israeli government, the the the, the PLO, uh, and the American government were quite critical uh, of these declarations, and later on adopted many of them themselves. And this is what I call normative power that you can get other actors to adopt your own positions. Now, I'm not saying that it was only because of the EU, and, but, and in social sciences there are often many. You know different factors leading up to you know somebody taking a decision, but I think it's fair to say that this was one of, of uh, one of the reasons, and that and that there was uh, clear normative power uh, involved here. Uh, so that was very important.
2: Can you comment on the EU's response to terrorism during the Oslo years? In your book, you touch on its response to the slaying. Assassinate and assassination of Itzhak Rabin, its response to the Baruch Goldstein massacre in Hebron in 1994 and to the suicide bombings by Islamic Jihad and Hamas. Can you comment on how the EU handled the um, the terrorism that arose in response to the Oslo Accords?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think it first is important to say that the, the worst terror attacks in Israel took place in the 1970s. We have uh, the Coastal Road Massacre, Malov School Massacre, Kiyat terror attack. When these happened at the time, the EU did not condemn them, which is an interesting story in itself. It started condemning uh, terrorism against Israelis slowly in the 1980s, and then it became routine uh, during the peace process of the 1990s. Uh, And it sort of, the the condemnations became stronger after the Second Intifada broke out uh, in 2000. So at one point, I think it was in 2002 or so, the the EU stated put out a very strong statement that said that suicide bombings do irreparable damage to the Palestinian cause. And I think that it did in, in many Europeans' eyes. In solidarity with the Palestinians was, in many aspects, much stronger before the militant Islamists became the most prominent actor uh, in the Palestinian society. There was, of course, various kind of ideological connections between Fatah and the PLO, and especially social democratic parties in Europe in the 70s, 80s and 90s and still are and we don't see you know anything comparable vis-a-vis the militant islamists
2: beyond verbal declarations what kinds of punishments or sticks as opposed to carrots could the eu foreseeably and conceivably implement in the israeli palestinian theater would instituting punitive measures against the parties make European policy more effective, or would it be a risk to what would otherwise be available and achievable diplomatically?
1: It's a great question, and it's a question which is uh, quite difficult to answer. But if I, if I would unpack it, I would sort of start by saying that there is a perception here that the Palestinians are too weak to 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 punish. If you punish the Palestinian Authority too much, it will collapse. It will open up the doors wide open for the Islamists. That is a situation that the EU absolutely wishes to avoid. So it can't punish the Palestinian Authority too hard because other worse actors would then be empowered. When it comes to Israel, the perception is uh, you know the complete opposite that it is too strong to to be uh, punished, especially since. Uh, it is allied so closely with the US. So a too strong punishment of Israel may sort of affect European uh, US transatlantic relations, which is not in the, in the, in the interest of, of the EU. But with all these things being said, the EU is the largest trading partner to Israel, uh, the largest trading partner to, uh, to, to, to many of the actors involved here. Uh, so it has enormous leverage and enormous clout, and it could do all kinds of things. Say, you know, and when, when it comes to Israel, the big things it can do would be to to say uh, have no longer have visa-free travel of Israelis to to, uh, to Europe, uh, to have sort of the uh, it's called the association agreement, which sort of regulates all kinds of economic dealings, and, and also the scientific corporations. So these are sort of the three big areas where it can punish. Israel on a broad scale. Then, it, then there are smaller areas, like say labeling settlement products, banning settlement you know, products, settlers to travel. So there are you know all kinds of sticks, from huge sticks to small sticks, uh, but nothing big haven't really been employed. There have been some measures, say you know labeling of settlement products, excluding uh, settlements from research corporation projects, and uh, sometimes sort of banning. Weapon sales to Israel, say, for example, during the first uh, Lebanon uh, war. But it's also important to say that a lot of these sort of, say, uh, cooperation when it comes to weapons and, and the intelligence systems and these kind of things have grown much, much closer after the second intifada and after the waves of, of terrorism in Europe five, six years ago. But I mean, for example, you know, 20 years ago, European policymakers criticize Israel for building the barrier wall uh, uh, in the West Bank and on Israel's border with the West Bank. And today, of course, you know, some European states are building their own walls. So so this is just an example of how the, you know, both the discourse and the reality on the ground have shifted. Uh, On on the Palestinians uh, side, they could could punish the Palestinians uh, in all kinds of ways. They have, of course, boycotted the Hamas government in, in Gaza. And we can have a discussion whether that was a wise thing to do or not. There have been three wars in Gaza or four wars in Gaza uh, since the Hamas took, uh, took power there. Uh, and, and it can also punish the, the, uh, the Palestinian Authority. Uh, but it doesn't really want to do that because it will make a bad situation even worse.
2: One initiative that was attempted during the 1990s was the European-Mediterranean partnership. Can you explain what was envisioned in the Euro-Mediterranean partnership? What came of it? What lessons do you see as relevant for thinking about this initiative in the context of EU-Middle East relations?
1: Yeah, it was an initiative that sort of materialized after Oslo, and we should keep in mind today that the Oslo sort of process was a multilateral process with sort of five different tracks, Israel versus the PLO, Israel-Jordan, Israel-Syria, Israel-Lebanon, and Israel of the wider Arab world. And on these tracks, it was only the Jordanian track that fully succeeded, and now with the Abraham Accords, we see that sort of Israel and the sort of the wider Arab world track is, is materializing with this new peace agreement. But the idea of the European-Mediterranean uh, Partnership was that sort of to have uh, bilateral relations between the EU and all of these countries and also having them meeting at the same time in various forms. And it worked for a while, you know, and this means, of course, in having Israel and Syria and all these kind of actors, uh, Israel, Lebanon, uh, talking to each other. Uh, One of the reasons why it didn't really move forward was that the Oslo uh, peace process was stuck after a couple of years. So it was impossible to, to deepen Israel's relations any further with Lebanon and Syria and some of the other. Uh, countries involved. And now, of course, peace process and peace negotiations took place with Syria, basically all the way up to the civil war broke out there with, you know, uh, a lot of problems uh, in between. But then, you know, nothing much really uh, came out in the end uh, of these projects, but they looked promising for a while.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: as an international American-led endeavor and the 9-11 attacks, coupled with the events of the 2000s, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Intifada, the Bush administration, terrorist attacks in Madrid and London. What role did the war on terrorism play in influencing EU policy toward the Israeli Palestinian conflict?
1: I think it had a tremendous effect on on, on many different levels. And I think, and I alluded to to one of the effects earlier, I I think it led to a shift in a much more pro Israeli conception within the EU and, and in a much less pro Palestinian conception. I know. That, that is not the fact, that, that that's not how many Israelis feel, and I know that, and I respect it. But I think that the data shows it, uh, and, and I can see that, for example, very clearly in my material, that there is a shift towards sort of embracing Israel and, and, and condemning the Palestinians much harder within the framework of the war on terrorism. And of course, it led to, for example, you know, placing Hamas on a terrorist list. It, 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 it created you know, all kinds of sort of conceptions of security that I think favored uh, Israel. So I think that it led to uh, a pro-Israeli shift in, in, uh, uh, in the EU's declaration, mm-hmm. even if it's not the way that many people feel Uh, but i think it is a fact if one actually looks look at what has been said and another thing is is important it also i think mainstreamed for a while the idea of a palestinian state because that had been anathema in the 1990s so i think it's also fair to say especially here in europe a lot of people saw the palestine question the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as one of the reasons, not the only one, but one of the reasons behind the war on terrorism, behind 9-11, and also sort of one of the solutions. You know, Bush came up with the idea of a Palestinian state You know, right after 9-11, you know, a month after 9-11. It wasn't like a, a, a coincidence. Uh, it had to do with sort of, you know, getting, uh, it had to do the. Uh, with winning the war on terrorism, now it did never materialized, but it was a very powerful idea uh, during the first, uh, first decade of the 2000s that the Palestinian state would be established. It culminated in 2011 in the UN, but when when it didn't, when, when it wasn't established,
2: why was Europe optimistic about President Barack Obama's vision toward the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? What role did Obama's policy play, Obama's policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian situation play in U.S.-European relations? Can you comment on the triangular relationship between President Barack Obama, the EU, and the Middle East conflict in the Middle East situation between 2008 and 2016?
1: There was enormous hope here in Europe uh, about Barack Obama. And one of the reasons for that was that many saw him as a an European. And people said quite openly that he has sort of a European mentality, he has a European conception, both of the world and when it comes to multilateralism, and when it came to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He shared, he and his closest advisors shared this, what I call the European twin standard narrative about the conflict. Arab-Israeli conflict most important, and solving that will lead it is sort of the key to solving other problems in the Middle East. That was what Barack Obama believed, and that was why he was embraced so much by the Europeans in the beginning. What is interesting to see, sort of uh, afterwards, is that basically everybody agree that Barack Obama was a complete failure. When it comes to Middle East peacemaking, sort of, you know, Israelis, Palestinians, from left to right, from you know secular to religious, everybody agree that it was a complete failure.
2: What would you make of Trump's approach to the Middle East in the subsequent years, uh, from you know 2016, 2017 onward? Um, how did Europe respond to some of the key policies? of President Trump in the Middle East, the Abraham Accords, his hostile posture towards Iran, recognizing Jerusalem and the Golan Heights as being under Israeli sovereignty. Can you comment on the EU's approach to Trump?
1: Yeah, uh, first of all, I think it's fair to say that a lot of Europeans, those sort of states and and, and the EU as an and many European individuals were very afraid uh, of Trump because I mean he had you know he was in favor of splitting up the European Union for for example so there was a lot of fear for him and I think he enjoyed being feared. Uh, he took the opposite approach after a while. And that is called the the outside in approach, meaning so Israeli Arab normalization first, Israeli Palestinian peace later, which is of course the exact opposite narrative to that of the EU. Uh, European policymakers said, "Well, you know, with this guy, in the beginning, there is one percent chance." that he will solve the conflict, 1%, because he is so different and maybe a little bit crazy and irrational and, uh, and all of that. And for you know, in the beginning, it was a little bit unclear what he was gonna do, because, because he was sort of for and against and in between on many issues like settlements and, and other things. After a year or so, I think it became clear that he was very, very pro-Israeli and he did a lot of things. He, he moved the embassy. He recognized uh, uh, Jerusalem as Israel's capital. He, he, uh, uh, he also recognized the annexation of the Golan Heights. He closed down the Palestinian mission uh, in Washington. He closed down the Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem. He, he uh, cut off aid, of course, pulled the U.S. out of the Iranian nuclear agreement. And he did a lot of these things, and basically none of them. Had the support of the Europeans, uh, so that was, a, I think, a radical uh, break. And of course, the most consequential. I mean, so many of these issues were quite symbolic. I would say, say, for example, the embassy move. It's a, you know, it's a very small embassy. The, the, you know, the, the the former embassy in Tel Aviv is still there. Uh, no one has followed him on the Golan Heights. Uh, I, I don't, and I. Uh, don't see any states in the pipeline doing so. Uh, Most governments here in Europe still support the Palestinian Authority. So some of it was sort of more symbolic. But pulling out the the U.S. from the uh, JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear agreement, was, was the big thing. Uh, and that is, of course, one big, big challenge uh, today. And if you read the Israeli press carefully, I think there have been a lot of articles over the past couple of weeks saying very clearly that that especially the Israeli military it would like to go back to the deal, even if it's not perfect. And I think that there are hints that the present government under Bennett and Lapid would also like to do it even if they cannot really say it explicitly yet. We should, of course, keep in mind that Israeli politicians over decades have invested so much time and energy and political capital in stopping Iran from ever getting to a nuclear weapon. And now it seems like they are closer than ever. That, of course, raises, I think, serious question marks about both Say the whole approach of Trump and Netanyahu to this.
2: How did the EU's global strategy for security and policy come to be? How did the summer 2016 statement of the EU differ from previous and subsequent global strategy declarations?
1: Yeah. Uh... It came, as you said, in the summer of 2016, just before Donald Trump was elected. So it became, I think it's fair to say, irrelevant quite fast because we had Trump, we had Brexit, we had the pandemic. So a lot of major things uh, happened right after it, it was published. The key concept of the global strategy is resilience. Uh, which I think is a good concept to use both sort of theoretically and empirically in the world that we are living in today. Uh, resilience is, uh, is, is, I think, it's, it's, an, it's a great concept. Uh, and part of the story here is that we talk a lot about the rise of China, uh, but it is happening you know, at the expense of Europe. So the decline of Europe is a big part of the rise of China, and I see that, for example, in my courses when I look at sort of economic data, we see that Europe's uh, relative uh, uh, weight in when it comes to say global GDP is smaller than before. We have lower, much lower uh, growth than especially China, and even lower than than than, uh, than the US. So, so we are becoming, you know, increasingly weaker. And I think it's one can see that as well if one looks at, uh, at, at the EU's policies vis-a-vis the Israeli-Palestinian conflict over uh, the past five years. So not much have come out of the EU's global strategy, but I think it's fair to say that sort of big, big events overshadowed it from Trump to Brexit to the pandemic.
2: Wow. You alluded to China just now. Um, How does the increasingly multipolar global geopolitical environment influence Europe's approach to the Middle East? As the Middle East becomes a more competitive multipolar environment with China and Russia being more actively involved what influence does this have on Europe's approach? Does it make Europe more dependent on the US, more assertive in trying to take an independent policy, more deferent to national governments, such as major powers like France, Britain, Germany? Um, can, you, can you comment on this um, in a multipolar environment, does this make Europe more reliant on creative and ambitious diplomatic initiatives or does it undercut them?
1: Yeah, good question. And I think the big, the big argument would be that it is definitely weakening the EU. So for the past five years, the EU has not been able to put out a single United statement from the foreign minister's on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, nothing. Uh, so that is, I think, telling of the very weak position of the European Union at the moment. So mm-hmm. that means that especially the, the government of Israel is dealing more and more with individual European countries like France and Germany and Sweden, bilaterally. Uh, and that's also a strategy by Israel of sort of you know, separating these uh, countries from each other in order to to, uh, uh, get a more favorable outcome from negotiating with individual countries rather than with the EU uh, as a bloc. And as you said, the the more and more sort of international actors are either engaging uh, when it comes to China or re-engaging when it comes to Russia with the Middle East, but not so much with Israel-Palestine, to be honest. Uh, Russia and China don't really have strong roles here, except for in the UN Security Council, where they, of course, regularly vote against everything that uh, either the US or Israel propose on this conflict. And there is a lot of hypocrisy involved here, let's be, from all sides, let's be honest and, and, and say that. Basically, sort of the only, uh, you know, human rights issues and uh, commissions that China and Russia support are those against Israel. Uh, whereas, I mean, in all, all other cases they talk about, you know, state sovereignty and you know, non-intervention and these kind of issues, except for Israel. Uh, whereas most European countries and the US supports the same kind of initiatives in most places, except for when it comes to Israel. And so here you see, of course, how the conflict is spreading yeah. to all over the world and affecting, you know, all kinds of actors. And, you know, people can throw accusations of hypocrisy in all kinds of directions with, I think, you know, uh, with, with good reasons. So, so but... They aren't that active uh, in Israel, Palestine, uh, Russia, and uh, uh, China. Yes, Russia, of course, has a very big role to play in Syria and vis-a-vis Iran, uh, and China may build up uh, capacity in the future, uh, but we are not there yet.
2: How has the transition from President Trump to President Biden, from Prime Minister Netanyahu to Prime Minister Bennett, and from high representative Mogherini to high representative Borel for foreign affairs and security policy changed the dynamic in recent months, years and months.
1: Well, I, I think it's fair to say that all developments have been warmly welcomed here in Europe, especially the first two. We, uh, I think most Europeans... Uh, and especially European governments, especially those in Western Europe, warmly embraced uh, Biden. Not because anyone is particularly fond of him, but uh, a lot of people here genuinely feared what a second Trump administration would have meant for, say, democracy in the world, multilateralism, you know, standing of the European Union, NATO, and all these kind of things, which of course are much bigger issues than Israel-Palestine. So, so for for those reasons, uh, most heads of states and, and, and governments uh, warmly embrace Biden, Biden. Even if I think it's fair to say that none, I, I can't think of anyone, any ana- analyst or anyone else who thinks that Biden will solve anything that has to do with Israel-Palestine. So there is, you know, absolutely no Optimism at all that he will do anything here. Uh, Bennett and his new government has also been uh, warmly embraced, uh, not as much as as uh, as Biden, but, but but genuinely warmly embraced, uh, and that's for uh, that is because of you know a couple of interesting reasons. I think Israel provides an interesting case. How you can get away with, a, you know, an incumbent populism that, that is very difficult to get away with this sort of broad rainbow coalition of, you know, everybody against Netanyahu is, I think, an example that others will look like uh, because we have, a, you know, a form of an eight party coalition government in Israel which is almost recorded. There was a nine-party government once in Italy in the 1990s, but this is sort of the second most parties in a government ever anywhere in the world. So that is impressive. Many here in Europe are also impressed that the Israeli electorate managed to oust Netanyahu peacefully with democratic elections. So so, uh, these are some of the reasons why... Uh, A lot of people, myself included, are are, are impressed by the new government uh, in Israel. And uh, because it it has put Israel on a different trajectory, and uh, who knows where it will end.
2: Do you have any conjectures as to how European involvement in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict might evolve in the new decade of the 2020s? What insights can you share on European policy towards the conflict since you completed writing your book? And is there anything our listeners can take away in regard to how to think about the future of EU relations with both Israel and the Palestinians?
1: Yeah, there are a couple of things that I think that are are well uh, worth uh, uh, mentioning. We are also living now in very pessimistic times, just like the 1980s, which was, as I said before, it was a complete dark decade. And suddenly it opened up, you know, rays of lights and hope with the beginning of the peace process that very few people saw coming beforehand. So we should never sort of underestimate the possibilities for change whether bad or good, for whatever reasons. uh, We should always be sort of be optimistic and open that things can change in whatever direction. That, I think, is one key lesson. Another lesson is that we here in Europe have strongly underestimated the cost of state collapses, uh, collapses in governance uh, structures in the Middle East, and their enormous cost for Europe. I'm thinking of Libya, I'm thinking of Syria, Iraq, Yemen, uh, and other countries, Lebanon, too, too, today. Uh, We have strongly underestimated the the costs when it comes to to, uh, refugee flows, and, uh, of course, we realize now that, you know, if your neighbor's house is on fire, you are not safe yourself, and we are very, very close to the Middle East, which is a big difference from from, uh, the American uh, point of view, and in light of this development, I think it's clear that we will do our utmost to keep the Palestinian Authority in place, however imperfect it may be, however you know corrupted it may be, simply to avoid further collapses in governance structures, further destabil- destabilizations of the region, and refugee flows. Uh, so I think that is you know something which I think. Uh, is clear will happen when it comes to say sort of to, to the to the, to the uh, you know the level of discourses and and, uh, and uh, the normative development. There are a lot of sort of new terminologies uh, entering into the debate, which I think will be part of the future discussions on say you know apartheid, settler colonialism, this kind of radical terminology that partly comes from. The progressive forces in, in, uh, in the US. It used to be that sort of Europe uh, influenced uh, America and America's debate on, on uh, Israel Palestine. But I see something coming here in, in the other direction. So a lot of these discussions will, I think, be part of the future. And of course, the biggest question of all here is that if there won't be a two state solution, what will be there instead? And that is not just sort of a development on the ground. It is also a a discussion of political theorists. And it has to do with, you know, all kinds of new terminology and concepts that needs to be legitimized and mainstreamed.
2: As we bring our interview today to a close, um, the final question I'd like to ask you is, what are you working on now or next as your subsequent research project?
1: I'm turning 40 next year. So I've been thinking a that's lot of what I'm gonna do. <laughs> Thank you. I've been thinking a lot of what I'm gonna do between 40 and 50. And I hope that this will be sort of my strongest decade. And I'm actually preparing a quite big research application on how, how the Israeli Palestinian conflict has affected anti-Semitism in my own country. Uh, because that's it's very clear that. The Middle East, Middle Eastern conflicts are being played out in Europe today. Uh, And we have seen this with Israel-Palestine for a while now. And we may see the same thing with Syria and Syrian refugees in the future as well. So I think these are important topics to study.
2: Great. That would be absolutely fascinating. Such an important contribution that will be Um, as your current book is and has indeed been. Thank you so much for the erudition and effort and investment that went into producing this wonderful monograph and this fascinating book.
1: Thank you, eric Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to be uh to be on your show today. I really uh I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Uh it's been an honor to have this dialogue with you. Thank you for your time and thank you for such a detailed response to the questions asked. Thanks
1: a lot. It was really a pleasure.
2: Thank you. To our listeners, this has been Dr. Anders Persson, Associate Professor of Political Science at Linnaeus University. We have been discussing his recent book, EU Diplomacy and the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, 1967-2019. to published by Edinburgh University Press, 2020. Thank you very much.